this twice, twice. It is disingenuous. Sports, sports, high respected. The situation now is even worse. Flood is not above the poverty line. Hello and welcome back to part two of the interview that I did. My name is Stuart. The interview I did with Liam Flenerty and Max Chandler Mather, uh, part one, came out last week. So uh, if you were listening to that, you will know that we were in the middle of discussing the crucial questions of hope and demoralization and related things. So without further ado, we will uh, let it continue. I was just sort of going back to that experience of the demoralization post those defeats um, for the kind of like movement left and counterposing the feeling of empowerment and like, you know, if you want to get all like, you know, revolutionary on it, like you, you're changing the world and changing yourself in the process like that. I felt in door knocking more than almost anything else um, and counterpose that feeling to the feeling of turning up to those ever smaller rallies that the left ghetto would yeah. all show up to over yeah. the years that I, I did that. Um, it's just like a totally different experience. And, um, you know, I think the idea, and I suppose, you know, maybe we're moving on to something else here and perhaps it's like, a, I mean, a bigger, pro another part of our, of our, of the piece of the puzzle is like what form of social organizing outside of the electoral stuff also needs to happen. And like, what's the role of the Greens in that is probably a question we can talk about. But I think yeah. one of the first things you need to do is go, well, the idea that there's these social movements out there that are like, you know, that, that these rallies are real, that they represent something real, um, like is also part of like, what we I mean we disagree with that is that like that at the moment I mean then maybe they have been maybe they will be again but like at the moment they're not real and they actually just project a, a large degree of of weakness and they make the people who turn up there either really demoralized and never come back or kind of like just assert their own reality to, without mm. relation yeah. to anything else and I think the door knocking thing has brought people who used to go to those rallies but have stopped in and kind of given them the space to go oh fuck you know like i never did this at a rally i just sort of chatted to mm. my mates and it, and it sort of felt sort of righteous but i didn't ever feel like i was yes. doing anything that really hits yeah i mean i feel that very very much and i sort of have um that these rallies in, increase and they're not reaching out at all they're not aimed at reaching out they are you know it's not absolute there are exceptions to it yeah. and i have a bit of a rule to judge it if i can hear the chant when such and such is under attack what do we do stand up fight back this is not a rally reaching out right because <laughs> the same people go to all these rallies and chant that you yeah. know whether and they just put something else in the middle like workers rights are under attack education yeah. is under attack um but a lot of the rallies and they tend to be the ones that mobilize the migrant groups you know they, mm. they do get different types of things so it's not a uh, yes. a question of one or the other and this probably leads yeah. into the question because i think this is sort of defined things pretty well where we have this uh, a political class and a political setup that is um you know not just alienated from ordinary people uh but actively hostile to their interests to the point of uh yeah they yeah, I mean, it's, it can be a bit difficult to talk about the climate stuff because it's so really? so extreme. Um, well, yeah. And then you have counterposed to that the things that you're describing, um, and which is that uh, ordinary people um, really <coughs> uh, 
feel very alienated for, from that and can easily be one to a perspective that has that. And that seems quite unique from mm. a lot of other, like, that's why I wanted to ask the question about seeing things as Labor versus Liberal, mm. uh, because this mm. is, I think you've defined it as anti-politics, anti mm. the whole, the whole lot of mm. them. Mm. Um, mm. But we're, we're, we have a very low starting point here. Um, so I guess what I wanted to get at is, is, well, your thoughts on how it's come to, to be that, you know, we have such weak, uh, you know, civil society, you know, extra parliamentary institutions in a way that hasn't always been the case. I don't want to romanticise the past. I think that could be very easy. Mm. Things, were, things were great 30 years ago. Well, no, they weren't great for most people. They just mm. gotten worse. It's a different mm. thing. Mm. Um, but, yeah, how we got there and then how you see... Uh, the potential to move beyond it. We've started to talk about that. We've done talk about all well, these rallies versus door knocking, but I'd be interested to hear how this frames your strategic approach to politics. Yeah, this, yeah. this is a this is kind of almost one of the bigger ones. Like, because I can see I can see a pathway for us to massively expand our uh, door knocking machine. I mean, not an easy one. Like, it's not like it's just going to happen. But like, I can see how we roll out the um you know more and more door knockers more and more people willing to like all that sort of stuff but how we you know i mean i suppose some of the more recent things around the climate bill housing bill and stuff has exposed like that the greens are very much on their own and there mm. aren't necessarily big civil society orgs kind of like pushing us or like backing us up all that sort of stuff um Except for the CFMEU. Except for the CFMEU, God bless them, um, <laughs> which I'm sure gave the Labor Party some serious fucking conniptions. Oh, um, yeah. But, yeah, like, I think, I mean, Max, I think you've probably got more developed thoughts on this than, than I do. I mean, I think, firstly, door knocking still would have to be the starting point because I think you need to build an army of people who are able to go out and convince other people to build, join your coalition, as Max Court said. Like, without that, I don't think anything else is going to end up being real because I think we need the transformation of consciousness of the people who call themselves either of the left or just kind of like progressively minded people because they have to have that experience of having to relate to somebody on the basis that that person of what that person cares about to begin with rather than just kind of shouting about what you care about so i think massively expanding our capacity to do that both in election cycles and outside of it which is why this housing campaign stuff that max's office is running is so exciting how that flows on into i mean the griffith office has probably got a whole bunch of stuff that they're doing that sort of points to the role the greens can play in trying to rebuild mm. kind of social connection and capacity and maybe that's where Max, you mm. probably have more to say than I would. Yeah, and maybe an answer to your initial question, Stuart. Like, um, well, I think in at least from a, it's just happened around the world, but in particular in an Australian perspective, the accord and the defeat of the the in sort of self defeat of the labor movement uh, in the eighties and nineties. Like talking about like that mm. for a generation of people convinced them that collective union organizing was not going to change their lives for the better. Um, and I have, like, um, it has been wild to door knock people who went through that process and had decided from the 90s, mm -hmm. like this boilermaker I spoke to, who was like, no, I got betrayed by my union and I've voted for the Liberal Party ever since. Um, like, <laughs> yeah. and um, I've had quite a few of work with workers of that generation. And um, I think why we don't have any of those large collective institutions anymore is A, because a lot of people said, well, we tried that and we got to 50% of the working population and our own leaders betrayed us. 
So why the hell would we trust them ever again? Um, speaking of the roots of anti-politics in Australia. Um, yes, in terms of going forward, I think a lot of what Liam said is correct. I mean, we have, we're thinking about it really carefully in this housing campaign. Um, and one of the things is, yes, like the capacity for door knocking is important for two reasons. One is that, yeah, reaching out to people and I think ultimately hopefully giving them the view that actually occasionally coming out to a rally or um, engaging proactively, like their action will actually result in them getting an affordable home Mm. Um, and finding ways to do that is important. I also think building that capacity means at crucial moments we can do proper tenant and renters organising. And um, one thing that should be happening in the middle of this is that Realistically, there should be large tenants unions and organisations out there threatening rent strikes. Mm. Um, and um, there was, there's been moments in Australian history where politicians or actually, well, in global history where politicians get up and said, if there isn't rent controls, there will be rent strikes. Like that's not because we're doing it, but it's because people are fed up. And, and I, increasingly, I think the Greens as an organisation need to help, um, help facilitate that. Um, but I think um, the other thing is there's a projection of power and one of the things we found when we did this first wave of door knocking around this housing campaign is it changed the way the Labor Party viewed this entire negotiation and debate, where we proved we could get 50 people on the ground in this key Labor electorate in this suburb where 50% of them rent and just door knock the entire suburb. And that spooked people in the Labor Party. And I think precisely because it was a demonstration of power and saying, hey, ordinary people can get up. And if you do not come to the table on this, um, we will win your seat at the next election. You will lose it. And that is actually, a, that's a formation of power. And Griffith stands, I think, as an example of what happens if the Labor Party abandon a community and we can get organised to do it. So I think that's mm-hmm. crucial. Mm-hmm. And then I think in terms of um, the other thing is, yeah, as Liam alluded to, in the Griffith office, we're starting to set up free breakfast programs and uh, free meal programs. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that's actually crucial for the Greens as well, which is, that in those, in, in those instances where there is a social conflict, that there is an institution there that can help reproduce your life and give you some semblance of protection or welfare in a way that emboldens you into thinking that actually it is worth taking up the fight because here's this political institution that can mm. provide free food and is organised enough to do this and competent enough to do this. And so if they can give me, make sure I get a free meal on a Friday night, maybe they do actually have the competence and capacity to win this border fight and I can believe it can happen. Mm. And so we're trying to do this all, you know, to be honest, it's too small at the moment, um, but we're trying to work one out- One office max. Yeah. <laughs> um, we're, we're trying to work out how that affects people and, and works on the ground. And we found it's had a very positive impact because the other thing, maybe this is the final thing I'll say, is this is a question of trust. Mm. Um, the, sc- the school, for instance, where we're now running this free breakfast, like people will come up to us and, and might bring up the housing thing. And, um, you know, where there's a chance that the Greens end up voting down this housing bill and then Labor will turn around and like, oh, you've let the perfect be the enemy of the good. But in those communities where we're giving people free food or those communities where we run a free barbecue for them or we provide some direct mm. material support, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. they are willing to trust, they're willing to go with us. They're like, look, I don't fully understand what's going on on this national debate, but because you're the one on the ground looking after me and providing support, I trust you, whatever you do. Mm-hmm. And that's power as well. Mm-hmm. Like the capacity to wield power in parliament where you can bring people with you because they trust you, because you provide, you become a permanent part of this broader social life yeah. is also a form of power. We need to work out how we expand.
Yeah, I think that's really critical in thinking about some of these really tough challenges coming up and being able to bring bring people along with you, but like not in a way that's just kind of like oh because we've got good comms, but like because we're rooted in in their lives and in the community and like we are part of it. I think the other thing, just quickly, sorry, Stuart, I know you had a point to make, but I just before I forget it. Um, is yeah. like the, the, the point about that Max made about like rent strikes, right? Like that we need some, some organization. And I know there's groups out there trying to do some of this stuff. And I, and I really like really wish them the best. I hope like they help, they, they do build that capacity and hopefully we can support that. But I think one of the things that running the kind of campaigns that we've run in, uh, Queensland does is it hot houses some pretty damn good organizers. Mm. that won't always all just get absorbed into the greens because there won't always be that many roles. I mean, there was this time around more or less because we won too many things. Like we won a lot of things really quickly, but like basically there is a huge generational like knowledge gap from when people used to do big organizing in, in the trade union movement to most of the trade union movement at the moment has no, like the organizers don't really know how to organize. The social movements are dead. And so the people who did know how to do that organizing um like don't don't exist anymore or they've they've let they've they've just kind of given up and so there's a new generation we kind of had to learn it for ourselves like we kind of just made it up and we're sort of learning from and i think you know i've been reading a lot of jane mcalevy and i know she, apparently she's there's people in union movement that critique criticize some of her stuff but i think there's been things that we've sort of picked up from here and there and built a kind of organizing model which takes us like very fundamentally that you have to like step by step patiently build capacity until you can mm. start to take on those bigger challenges of something like a rent strike. What do you need to do first to get enough people to be willing to take, what's the action that they can take and how can you convince them that it's in the, the pipeline, like along the path to them wielding the kind of collective power that a rent strike across say Brisbane or a particular set of suburbs would allow them to wield. So like, what's your, what's your plan there? Like, it's not, as, it's not good enough to just kind of, let's have a forum about our rent strike, get 50 people on the thing and then the next day call a rent strike. Well, obviously that's not gonna work. You need an organizing model that says, I'm gonna go door to door in high rental areas and like week in, week out, get people on this list, you know, and then call one after another kind of action. Maybe it's they're all putting up a yard sign that's kind of antagonistic towards their landlord, which is their first step at being antagonistic. And if we get a thousand of those up in this one suburb, maybe we've got the collective power to take the next step. Like those sorts of things are things that aren't existent at the moment in the kind of broader social movement. And I think that you learn well, we've learned, like, I would feel so much more confident going out if I, if I left the Greens uh, for a while and, and wanted to do that sort of stuff. I would be so much better at doing it, having spent the last seven years organising to mobilise massive amounts of people um, to turn up, to door knock for election day, for pre-poll, for letterboxing, whatever, because you know the steps that you need to broadly and you have to creatively apply it for different contexts. But that's, I think that's another thing that we maybe forget about is that the Queensland Greens is starting to generate a new organiser base for these sorts of things. And I intend very much to continue that and over the next few years, hopefully generate another couple dozen who are gold dust organisers who maybe won't all get absorbed, snapped up into the next uh, offices or campaigns or whatever, and mm. then can go into their communities and do this stuff. Yeah, that's. Uh, I want to look actually at some of the 
deeper into some of the mechanics of this and how it differs from other approaches in the sense that, because we were talking before about demonstrate, you know, rallies and often small rallies, not reaching out, all the rest of it. Um, you obviously don't object to street protests. I mean, if you look at, you know, Max, if you look at your Facebook, you're involved in quite an insane number, frightening number of campaigns, doing all kinds of things, public <laughs> meetings, street protests, all the rest of it. Probably too um, many at the moment. I mean, the, yeah, <laughs> sure. But I'm interested in the mechanics of where that comes from, because part of the problem when the far left or small isolated activists do it, it's often them with no roots in society coming up by themselves with a list of list of things and then sort of going out and seeing who will come to their mm. rally. And mm. it's usually not that many, many people. I'm interested in the mechanics of where your campaigning priorities come from and how that's different from this. That's a great question. It, actually, one of the people I need to shout out here is Claire Scrine, who is sort of the... Um, uh, she is a brilliant organizer, mm. uh, but um, and uh, the sort of director of my campaigns in my office. And one of the things um, she talked about pre the Griffith campaign, actually, when Liam and I were setting it up and Mel, and we were thinking about setting up this community organizing arm of the campaign, um, uh, was it her line, go to where the energy is? And it seems somewhat um simple when you think about it but something maybe the left has forgotten <laughs> in broad terms um which is the first instance a lot of the campaigns you probably see online that we're involved in Stuart are um ones where where as a result of door knocking or being genuine mm. and, and uh, thus organically connected on the ground you start to pick up general social latent um social desires in mm. a community um, at a collective enough, large enough scale that where, say you, as a basic test, if you letterboxed an area just with one letter and without much else pr promotion, say 50 to 100 people will just show up. And where that's the case, um, it, for us, it's a sign that we've tapped onto something that there is a latent social desire for something, whether it be saving mm. a local park or winning a new local park or, um, or saying stopping the sell-off of public housing or whatever. Um, and uh, that for us is always a really um, good sign. So that's mm. part of the mechanics of how that works. Crucially, again, I, ha I hate to sound like a broken record, it partly comes from our capacity to be connected enough on the ground to pick it up in the mm. first place. Mm. And oh, that yeah, means hugely. Have, that means having open-ended conversations that can collect that information by people who are trained the way we train them to um, let the conversation organically reach that point. And then in other instances, say you probably saw the rally we organised around housing with the CFMEU, um, that's also come from something I've learnt more recently, um, which is this concept of coalition, broader coalition building and leveraging your connection to um, late existing, often very obviously very diminished from the past, but still there's social organisations and bringing them along as part of a, where you take, um, in a way, take leadership of a campaign, but... Um, you know, it's very much sort of building, not building a hegemonic block, but it's building a block um, uh, that you reach out to this organisation, you give them a sign that you're willing to fight for their interests um, and you're willing to make concessions to and, you know, not play purity politics in a way um, by, by forming alliances of people who say, we don't agree on everything with each other, but we have this common material interest. And that was something that I think we're getting better at as well. And that's not necessarily, that sometimes is touching into an organic issue. For instance, housing, obviously, it's, it's patently obvious that's an organic issue in the sense that this is probably the worst housing crisis Australia has faced in generations. Um, but it's also about recognising 
how how do you take leadership of a movement that isn't about trying to impose everything you believe on someone, but actually more about trying to find that common ground and then leveraging that into something bigger? Yeah, sure. Um, in terms of more <laughs> of the mechanics of this, like some of the political content of this, because uh, one thing that seems that you're doing that's quite different from uh what there is, for example, of the climate movement, uh, mm. is how do uh, you often face quite a range of whether it's housing, climate, you can look at any issue and you can look at it in isolation, but obviously it's all bound up with the things we were discussing earlier, which is essentially the vast majority of society not being represented by parliament. And in fact, those political forces being hostile to them. Uh, mm. And the question, I guess, is, it seems like this is something that affects your thinking, but I did see a quote, uh, and I forget who from, that said, you know, our task is to connect the end of the world to the end of the month, to connect the existential threats that we face with basically people's day-to-day -day thing. I'm interested in how, in terms of the content of your door knock and the content of your campaigning, how you see connecting what is often very frightening things like climate change and talking to people about that and connecting it to the daily interests. That's uh, well. Hmm. Like, I'm, I'm, tricky question. <laughs> okay, tricky question. <laughs> I think the way that okay, and everyone would probably do it a little differently. Although we do try to like run pretty good trainings to get people like door knockers at least kind of fundamentally on the same page. But that's almost more a perspective thing that we're teaching people in our training. There's a few techniques mm -hmm. and tools that and kinds of questions to ask or whatever. But really what we're trying to do in our trainings is take middle, like often middle class, actually no, increasingly an expanded, I would say, class uh, base. Um, yeah. But it was originally, it was initially, it was like university educated, like, as you say, Stuart, downwardly mobile, um, you know, millennials. That's such a brutal, <laughs> that is such a brutal one. <laughs> but, so that was a class origin, but it's certainly getting broader. But regardless, it is regardless of the class positioning it's usually progressively politically enveloped people like people who feel like they've been negative like sort of negatively integrated into the political class as the kind of like uh, like i'm the good one but like yeah. i still follow politics but you know i wish politics was like my politics and what we try to do is sort of like teach them to to they, they basically have to lose most of their assumptions about that all this sort of stuff and so the, the trainings do this sort of stuff anyway that's a that's a sort of side point like the way that i sort of do it is usually via the enemy like is usually via naming a common enemy like that is the blocker to the particular issue that this person like whether it's school funding right like if it's school funding that this person really worries about because their local school, like they say they're a mum and their local school uh, doesn't have the infrastructure it needs for whatever reason. And then you can talk about that and you can talk about why the um, Labor government isn't, you know, state Labor government um, isn't funding that properly. You can start to name a common enemy, which lo and behold, tends to be the mining, like, you know, industry and then you can start to like un it, it usually comes then spontaneously from them i find that they start to bring more broader concerns mm. in when you've reframed it as this kind of big class fight and they start to then connect the dots like they've already connected them really and they're like most people kind of get get that stuff and so it's not necessarily 
um, you know, being like didactically, oh, and don't you think also they're the ones causing climate change? You know, you don't have yeah. to do that because they kind of, they, they know. Um, but, yeah. but giving them the space to go, yeah, wait a second. It is fucked that these massive corporations are exporting billions of dollars of uh, wealth every year and paying, you know, 7% royalties on it and dodging the corporate taxes. They, they are the ones who are controlling the power. And so then you can kind of go, well, you know, this is the power structure that is that means that we are unable to to sort of like actually transition or like you know move on to to new industries that aren't um, you know extractive, et cetera, et cetera. This is the reason why we're also not able to you know fully fund our hospital systems, you know, and so on. And so it's like it doesn't that I usually that's those kind of the because once you set up a bit of a a f kind of a frame you've kind of reframed i suppose we do talk about the now door knock trainings don't we it's like a, yeah. a kind of a reframing thing like and it's it's anything from parking the pivot you know anything so, from um, par parking on your street to you know uh, <laughs> and gina reinhardt's at fault for all of it um, yeah, absolutely yeah, yeah. always <laughs> um, no, I'm, i think picking up on that point lee matt and, and it is like it is incorporated into our sort of more advanced and, and intermediate training but I think the broader thing about the reason for picking out the enemy as well is is developing a narrative as to why life and the world yeah. is the way it is. Yeah, yeah. And Massively. the 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 villain in that narrative just happens to helps that all of this is true. But the villain in that narrative plays a really crucial um, role, and and it's it's, it's it, I don't mean to get all like um, uh, academicy about this, but it is interesting to me that this sort of postmodern turn in popular culture and politics deprived so much of progressive politics, the capacity to describe a broader narrative about the world the way it is and, and, and bring people along. And so everything's always so complicated. Mm, oh, you couldn't mm. possibly understand it. And oh, see, there's actually about um, a 50 page treatise you have to read before I can explain to you why climate change is happening. Mm. And um, the um a lot of people instinctively get that actually yeah fossil you know is a fossil fuel corporations happen to donate millions of dollars to the labor party there's a revolving door between them and um uh, and labor politicians and uh they have a direct financial interest in in expanding coal and gas production and screwing the rest of us over and so um yeah we think that for instance that's why uh they get away with paying no tax and um, I think that like that actually is it's a form of political education for both our volunteers and for the people we speak to in the sense that volunteers then have that reflected back to them or people confirming it and like expanding on it. Um, the other crucial thing about it as well is once you identify the power holders and the enemy in society, it makes change happening more possible. Mm. Um, I think that's the other thing about naming yep. that, um, which is that you start once once you understand the problem, it's much easier to conceive of a solution. And um, whereas I think this is, again, watch the fucking fuck me. They're good at it in a way, but watch the way the Labor Party, in particular, people like the Labor intellectuals, everything is so complicated for them. Like yeah. it's, oh, we need these hmm. wildly yeah. complex tax incentives and solutions to deal with the problem that actually what it could be solved is by nationalizing that industry and distributing the resources in an even way. Yeah. Um, and the reason it's complex is because actually there isn't actually any villain. Everyone's just trying their best and we're yeah. just about balancing all of these interests. And that is an yeah. ideological falsehood um, that I think uh, describing that narrative is crucial for getting people, connecting people back to the big picture.
I think that's we've taken that on as a really important part of our like overall approach is because people like if you just put out even if it's just in your communications if you put out a flyer for instance with just all your good stuff on it like hey with just like a laundry list of the good things that you that the greens want people will rightly look at that and go like yeah sure this is this all looks lovely but like you know how's that how's that any of that going to happen as soon as you put a frame on it it's like that allows them to go oh yeah actually you know like i do want all that sort of stuff and i can i now see the or at least I've been reminded because I kind of get it, but it's, you've got to kind of draw it to the surface in some ways. Like I can see the blocker to this. Now I'm going to actually take it a little bit more seriously. Um, it, it's certainly something we like, I, I would never, if I was running a campaign, just put out a like, here's all the, like vote for the Greens. Here's all the great stuff. You have to name yeah. a reason why it's not happening. Otherwise people just think you're an idiot. Another, on the same sort of line. So maybe another tricky one uh, is the question of, I guess tensions or or maybe the importance of material interest to people like you're actually mm. talking about things that are in people's material interests potential ways that connects to what might be described by some people as you know moral politics uh, yeah. which I guess is essentially things that don't directly affect you question yeah. of refugee rights first yeah. nations liberation I mean one thing at the moment that the very terrifying frankly, rise of transphobia and things like mm, that. Yeah. How do you see those things connecting uh, and the, the relative weight of each? Yeah, we yeah, dealt with really this. In, question. It's a great question. We dealt with this way more directly in 2019 when One Nation and actually a sort of more explicit mm. racist politics um, was more prevalent. Um, and I'm quite proud of actually the work we did in crushing One Nation in Queensland. Like, can I just say, we got a higher <laughs> primary vote in Oxley than uh, One Nation did. Like that's yeah. Pauline Hanson's old seat. And as a result of our politics and our work, yeah. like the Greens got a higher primary mm. vote there than One Nation. So suck shit to One Nation. But um, you pieces of crap. But the, yeah. um, what like, and it was actually quite, we we had entire training sessions on how to deal with this where people brought up refugees in a negative or or like or or, or islamic phobic politics and mm. it went something like the pitch went something like this and, and it worked i um i will recount a story just to give you an example there was this it was um weeks i think after the christchurch christchurch massacre and i was door knocking this older lady and we were really vibing on publicly owned electricity and making big corporations pay their fair share tax so she could get go and get go and see a dentist. And then out of nowhere, she sort of brought up like, oh, I don't really, her quote, her words were, I don't really like those Muslims. And um, I'm concerned about more refugees coming into the country. And um, she was like, oh, no, you know, I have this, um, uh, you know, this neighbor I don't really trust. And he happened to be a Muslim man and this lovely family that I went and door knocked afterwards. And her name, I think her name was like Norman. I was like, oh, look, Norman, we've just talked about all of these things. And, and my instinct is I'd love to hear your feedback on this. Like my instinct is that, you know, we were just talking about BHP and Santos. You know what they want? Like what they want is for us to be divided. Like they want us to be fighting our neighbors. Um, and the more we're divided up and the more we're divided up by the color of our skin or the way we talk, the more they win. So the more time we're focused on each other and fighting each other, um, the more money they get away with not paying any tax and the more underfunded our services are. And that's why you always sit, I was like, Norma, that's why you always see them talking it up in the media. Like, why do you mm -hmm. think they're focusing on that? And, um, and I was like, look, our vision is 
if we all come together and put aside our differences and at least demand these bastards pay their fair share in tax so you can go see the dentist, then I think we all have a better life. And her reaction was fascinating. Like this is a woman in the outer, outer suburban part of Griffith. And she was like, oh, that actually does sound like a really nice idea, Max, but I, I don't really know how it's going to happen. And um, we, we suppressed the One Nation far right vote in, in Griffith um, mm. and we did it again in 2022 yeah, yeah. based off those sort of conversations. And I, I should finish off that story. I went and door knocked the Muslim family after that, this lovely guy. Mm. And I was like, oh, mate, I'm so sorry for your neighbour. Like that <laughs> she sounds like it might be a bit of a handful. And he was like, oh, no, it's all right. Like she's lived a tough life and she did live in a, mm. I think she lived in a social housing unit. Was pretty, and he was like, we actually pray for her every now and then. And for me, that was like, so um, that, that is anti-racist. For us, that was yeah. anti-racist politics. And it was based in, in, in forming, attempting to form a collective interest um, and, a, and a common struggle via a common enemy, which mm. was in this case, Santos and BHP, but appealing to people's ultimately, again, and I mentioned this before, like inherent social nature and this willingness to want to connect socially once you break down those ideological racial barriers and and we trained a lot of people in that and we found it works pretty consistently yeah yeah not every well, time but of course it's not it's, yeah. it isn't going to work every time like nothing's not, going to work every time yeah. but it is quite remarkable how and i suppose that's the other reason why the naming the enemy thing is so critical is because people do instinctively want a reason why something's why things are bad for them like yeah. they just and so they'll find well i mean in the, and it's in the interests of the entire class of people in power that yeah that it is immigrants or, or you know trans people mm. or whatever and that if you if you don't come up with a different kind of social cleavage or like whatever you want to call it social contradiction that names the reason why think things aren't good then you're incapable of kind of you that doesn't solve it because you still need to have the positive work of like saying but hey actually your neighbor has the same interests like they they need the same things that you do and in fact if we mm. don't kind of come together we won't be able to take on the enemy but if you don't name the enemy in the first place you don't actually have that capacity to right. reorient that kind of psychic like the emotional stress like they're trying to put it on something <laughs> and understandably and this is why like liberal or like labor yeah like labor the labor party um and more liberal style politics where there is no enemy like hillary clinton well i mean she always the, the deplorables were the enemy right um but like you know the the kind of image of that politics where it's like oh it's just different stakeholders and and whatever is so incapable of um you know advancing a kind of a new social force is because it's demobilizing because people where will that psychic energy go it will go somewhere mm. that frustration that people feel in their life like things should be better for me and and they should be better for those people um it's going to go somewhere so we did yeah it was quite a and we tried to make sure that that's included in all of our like comms as well mm. like in the way that we teach people to to sort of write and and all of that sort yeah. of stuff as well mm. to sort of like it's coalition building all the way through and and kind of under under this framework that everyone is just everyday people like we, you know it's you can't to say like oh the working class is not really meaningful for a lot of people anymore so you wouldn't call it that it's like well working people probably isn't the isn't a, a term that I think is universal enough or generalizable mm. enough for people to feel as an umbrella. But if you just say everyday people counterposed to, uh, you know, then you're, yeah, your Sudanese neighbor is an everyday person and you're tra the trans uh, woman over the street is an everyday person. You know, that's the work that we're trying to do. That leads on really well, actually, I think, to my next point, which is actually to go a bit big picture again. 
Um, oh, haven't got Stuart. that. <laughs> <laughs> well, because I think um, this is trot coming out again. You know. Yeah. Well. Well. Yeah. You wait till you hear what I'm going to say. Oh, fuck. <laughs> um, because it is that 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 question. Because I, you know, with that level of alienation and all the rest of it in society and frustrations, it is easy for to go into all kinds of directions. And I worry a lot about um, Western Sydney, where I I live. That there is such a high level of um, dissatisfaction and all the rest of it, but there's not really any left presence there. I'm not going to, um, not at all. So I worry about where it could go. Now it hasn't mm. really gone to the far right. It's sort of just scattered around a bit at, at the moment, but it has that potential. Yeah. But that I think leads into my next question, which is when you do a lot of the work that you do with this kind of base building, finding out what people want, knocking on their doors, a lot of the things you did, like using your machine during the floods to mm. go clean people's homes, uh, to aid packages during the lockdowns to help people out. A lot of those things, um, at least in theory, don't require a political approach. They don't require being in a, in a party. You could do a lot of it without mm. it. Um, so I guess, this is the big picture part. I mean, why politics and why do it in the framework of a political party? That's, you know, it's true. That's a great question. And one I thought about very specifically around the floods, I got halfway through writing this article that um, I just, it's sitting somewhere rotting away um, about specifically why do so much of this community organizing and, and organizing around the floods through a political institution and a political party. And one of them is that um, there was a lot of mutual aid groups that sprung up during the floods, um, in particular places like Lismore. But one of the unique things about um, what we were doing, I think, via the Greens as a political institution, is the legacy of that work. So both the institutional knowledge and the confidence in the community didn't attach itself to an institution, but attached itself to the Greens as a political party. And that's really important for one reason in that it built confidence in the Greens as a political institution um, rather than in say like, oh, there's Max or there's Amy or there's a particular volunteer. Actually, everyone remembers, actually what everyone remembers is, oh yeah, the Greens were the ones helping us on the ground. And um, I, I think about this lot, a lot um, coming out of the, um, you know, we talked before about the Iraq war marches and things like that and the flash in the pan, so those flash in the pan moments. Mm. Is what was nice is that we were doing this organising know that, knowing that this was going to have a decades plus long legacy in people's mm. memories and trust in a political institution and in the skills and knowledge that we built up so that the next time a flood hit, within the Greens as an institution, as a political institution, we were able to share that knowledge, disseminate it and roll it out again, which would be very different in an ad hoc organisation. Mm. And then the second point to make is, well, the reason those floods were happening, as you said before, Stuart, was because BHP and Santos wield enormous power, mining corporations mm. and fossil fuel corporations over the global and Australian political system. And so I personally think it's sort of, it's like a basic ethics that the work that we're doing here needs to be building towards a political party and political movement capable of challenging that power so that we sort of help stop those future floods, you know, because there is a political frame around all what all of this but is happening. Do you find a count, it's kind of posed in any way? Like, you know, like there's only so many hours in the day. If you're focusing on elections, is that kind mm. of posed to doing that work or? No, the only reason we had the, the experience, the resources and the capacity yeah. to do any of that was precisely because we were involved in electoral politics. And yeah. one of the points we make to anyone who will listen 
is that the part of the reason we want to win seats and elections and build up the capacity is precisely to win the resources, experience, knowledge, standing, and um, and broader movement capacity so that we can intervene in those movements and help people directly. And if it weren't for the fact that we had spent all of that energy, then when those floods hit, we wouldn't have had the capacity to help. Um, it, they are in fact a symbiotic, quite interrelated, um, it's self-reinforcing. So the community organizing helps us build capacity to win future elections and winning future elections helps us build the capacity to help people on the ground. And actually it is a very virtuous feedback cycle that we found has the speed with which it's accelerated. And I'm sure I know Liam and I, we've talked about this a lot. It's quite exciting about how quickly it's happening. Mm. Like I'm confident now the next, if the next flood hit, we wouldn't just be able to help people on the ground in our own electorates. And we're already starting to do this a little bit just out of our little old Griffith campaign, um, helping people as far as Rock Lee in Brisbane. Yeah. But I'm yeah. confident we could help Brisbane wide at a, at a scale, at a, frankly, at a scale far greater than the council was able to do. Well, we were already quicker and more on the like more able to yeah. get to people like we've got there quicker than council did like we we'd already cleaned up people's homes and two days later the council would show up so like there was there was certainly that i think the other thing to say is that like and it was to go back to that point around social movements and how like well i don't think like until we've trained a heap of people to be able to go door knock particularly in alienated times like i don't think we're going to rebuild those movements i think the reason the part of the reason we had a particularly successful um we were particularly useful let's say during those floods mm. was we had a layer of people um there was probably about 40 sort of shock troops like that we had about several hundred volunteers yeah, we had probably several hundred volunteers who, who were able to go out and do a thing. But we had at that time, and by the end of the Griffith campaign, we probably had 100 quite good door knockers. But at that time, we had probably 30 or 40 people who were able to go out, knock on people's doors, have a really in-depth conversation, treat it respectfully as well, and kind of like listen to where people are at. Often we had to come back, it was the second or third day when people were actually willing to say, actually, yeah, I do need help. And that required people having the confidence and the kind of like, um you know it's it's a sort of a basic training like i'm sure some people would just be able to do it without our training like that's but the fact that we had the institutional uh, like training that was already kind of done where these this layer of people would be like all right let's go out we know that here's the flood map so this is where it's likely to be flooded can you just drive out there see what people's homes are like knock on their door and see if they need help and then call us and we'll <laughs> and there was this whole you know uh squad in the griffith office and mel and myself were kind of like heading that up with the help of jono's and amy's offices as well kind of triaging like getting this call from a volunteer saying yeah we actually need six people down here because there's three homes that really want our help and but they need a, a dry vacuum where do we get a dry vacuum and so then there was there like six of us in the office kind of going all right who do we call to see if we can get a dry vacuum and i mean that's like i don't yeah i like i mean that's just really good capacity i think max really nailed it when when he was sort of i mean something that's we said from the very very beginning despite you know people being a bit skeptical of this because we did have to put a lot of resources into just winning seats and so you can understand from the outside it's like oh but why aren't mm. you trying to build these other things i think what we the analysis we took was well those other things are kind of blocked at the moment like building a big rally is kind of blocked at the moment you can't just like the five of us or ten of us mm. could try to do it and it would have not much like we waste a lot of time and the, the result wouldn't be very good why don't we spend the time we win all these seats we build capacity out of that we get all these office resources 
that then we can start plugging back into it. And it is a virtuous circle, like Max says. And the, the problem we have at the moment is it's just not big enough yet. Like, I, I feel like a lot of the critiques you could make of what we're doing at the moment is just because we're not there yet. Like, we're, we're not the social force that we want to be. Like, it's still small yeah. relatively and, to what the scale of the things we want to achieve. And the other reason, this is a, we came back to it, but it's pretty simple. Like, my God, progressive politics doesn't win enough. Like, yeah. I'm frankly just sick of losing. Like, and that was like a, a True, real Max. feeling in the lead up to 2016. Yeah. It was like, I won't, I'm not in it. Like, and I said, I can't remember who I said this the other day, but I was like, yeah, I'm in this to win. And by win, I mean change people's lives for the better. Yeah. Like, I'm not here to honorably lose. Yeah. yeah um, yeah. Because to be frank, progressive politics over the last couple of hundred years yeah. mostly is what it does. And like, that I don't think that's a moral or ethical political project to pursue one where you think by and large, you're probably going to lose because actually the stakes are so high and whether or not someone gets food in their belly or whether or not another flood happens in Lismore is sort of down to whether or not we win. So yeah. let's actually be serious about how that happens. And yeah. every time we win um, and intervene in and build this movement in electoral politics, the more people we draw, the more confidence and thus we build a broader layer of people and thus a broader layer of people were able to mobilize when say we're helping with the flood. And I think um, the winning thing is like the, the electoral part of it gives you, and this is something that I think Max and even Jono was saying like at the start of all of this stuff in, in, in the South Brisbane area, 2016, 2017, was it gives you a tangible win. Like these people went out and they knocked on doors and then the person that they wanted to get elected got elected and they won. And the whole media establishment goes, where the fuck did that come from? And you get to feel powerful over the fucking cretinous fuckheads in the media who, and all the professors at the fucking universities who all do this analysis to say, oh, the Greens will get a small swing, but actually Labor is going to get the biggest swing <laughs> in this seat. And we take fucking shreds off the Labor vote and you feel powerful and you feel like, fuck yeah, I want to do that again. Yeah. And it gives you that kind of like, well, okay, that's a little beachhead. Like we've got that. All right. Well, what do we get next? Whereas a lot of the kind of rally work that was happening for a long time was like, what did we win? Even if it was a big mobilization, even if it was like, fuck yeah, we got 10,000 people out on the street. Yeah. Okay. What, yeah. You know, what next? Like, what is well, that? Like yeah, it dissipates. Yes. yes. And, and yeah. it means that political moments like energy ebbs and flows. Like the reality is we're never going to be able to be on an election footing permanently. But the thing about winning Jono's seat was we won and we could all catch a breath, but we wouldn't lose that political beachhead and, and representative. Mm. And after we won Amy or, or Michael Berkman or in Griffith, although we didn't really feel like we had a rest after Griffith. Well, um, you, you didn't. I think yeah. a lot of the volunteer base actually yeah. did, did actually and get but, a time to, yeah, yeah. <laughs> to sort um, of take a, take a beat. <laughs> yeah. And so I, I think that's also crucial as well is this sort of like, um, I, this is that we're pursuing a political strategy that allows us to have a rest and not lose something um, and and start at a higher yeah. and higher base. Rather than just chasing everything constantly and just getting exhausted. Yeah. I guess like following, look, following on from that, it's another, um, we're getting sort of towards the end. Yeah, but I'm going to have to head one. off in five or ten. So, yeah. yeah. Look, I want to <laughs> ask this one. You can answer it reasonably briefly uh it's something you probably don't spend much time thinking about because it's just what you do and the framework in which you do it but it follows on from the political thing which is you don't have you could be you could do this work as independence you could set mm. up another small left party there's plenty you look at the ballot paper every election in the senate and there's a whole lot of progressive side of politics things why the greens 
Well, I can speak from my personal experience. Like it was just this, like, um, we talk a lot about the transformations we made in Queens, in the Queensland Greens, but no, a lot of it couldn't have happened without building upon a lot of the hard work people had done in building up. The mm. Greens is a political institution. Mm. Of course, it had its flaws, like any progressive political movement. And, we ha- and I certainly have my critiques. Um, and actually, I would say, and I, I think I said this to someone before, like, the na- one of the nature of the Greens, especially in Queensland and probably um, in New South Wales and, and a few other state Greens parties is it's quite true that it is a, like this sounds cliche, but it's actually true to say that it is a grassroots um, political organisation in the sense that it's quite responsive to the, it's, the way it's mm. member, the politics of its membership change. Like, um, after we won the GAB award in 2016, like the political institution, and this is a testament actually to a lot of the people in leadership, like people like Kitty Carr, the state director, um, the politics of the entire organization changed. There was no barriers actually to it changing and shifting in relation to what was successful and, mm. and the shifting yep. social base of the party, which is increasingly um, sort of an assetless renter class who were becoming the sort of more active base of the party. And mm. so, um, this is the legacy of this sort of, um, and also I think because the Greens as a political force emerged as a result of the alienation of a lot of left Labor supporters post the Keating and Hawke period and the er- early shift towards being anti-refugees that um, Labor shifted towards around Tampa, that that 10% of the vote became the left of Labor vote. And um, that's a crucial part of any coalition you're trying to change politics and society. And so I think that's the other reason as well. But um, it is actually true to say that think about the speed with which organisationally and politically the Queensland Greens change. That is partly because genuinely it sort of is a very democratic institution without any power holders in the way um, Mm. um, to um, stop that from happening. And so and I think also, you know, it's social base, which is a combination of renters and this um, broader middle class group who felt disillusioned by Labor, like that is a, that's, that are the building blocks of a winning coalition to change society and no other political movement in Australia have that. Yeah, I I think that's, I think that's a really good um, thing. Oh, the only thing I would add um, is around the, like, the way I sort of see what we're doing in the Greens is not like, um, it's sort of like, well, the Greens sort of platform, certainly in the most recent elections, is like, well, it's, like what? What if you know what? There's things. There's little things here and there that you could critique and whatever. But it's like mm. it's, this is this is on the right track. It's like why? Like you know. And so the, the the critique that you could make of the Greens is maybe they don't have the winning strategy, but it's not necessarily the program itself. The program itself needs further elaboration. It needs to be subjected to sort of like critical examination, maybe tightened up a little bit. Mm. But like the the Greens as a vehicle, like. I think in general around the country are like, well, okay, we've got this platform. We don't really know how to win this next big step, like the extra 5% of the vote or whatever. But like where we see that happening, we're going to sort of like, like appreciate that that new strategic logic, like, and we will take that on board. And I think that's what we're trying to do in Queensland is show that, look, hey, here's a strategy we think will win. Um, it's not a matter of like changing the Greens fundamentally in terms of like, oh, you know, it's got to become a communist party or, you know, it's radical, it's, it's not revolutionary enough. Like none of that is like really that the important thing. The important thing is like, does the party have a strategy to 
grow and build power in society that it can actually begin to actually implement and enforce some of its actual politics. The, the, the actual basic stuff is pretty much there. Um, so, I mean, and that was a recognition like, oh, once, because I didn't join the Greens until after Jono won, but it was Jono's win that made me go, oh, fuck it. You know, like my whole thing was like the Greens yeah. are kind of shitty and they don't really know what they're doing. And that's why <laughs> I didn't join. And it's like, oh, fuck, well, it looks like there's a bunch of them who do know what they're doing. Yeah. And hell yeah, I'm going to get on board. Yeah. I, I've got to run though. Um, yep, so. sure. Well, well, we'll end it there. Um, I think, yeah, I mean, I found that very, very interesting um, mm. discussion about how really do we bridge where we are at the moment with this hostile style political class serving hostile mm. interests and an alienated population mm. how do we actually begin to build the counterpower and there's a lot more to discuss so we will have further ones of these we but should, yeah. i don't know i mean yeah i found this very very useful and i thank you very much for your time and the chance to the chance to <clears throat> do it in the context of your podcast you got up there which people should listen to former episodes as well there's a lot of gold there um, yeah thanks thanks Stuart, and liam for thinking of this idea it's um you happened upon a great idea. And the last thing I just wanted to leave it with, and I wanted to mention it before, read that um, hopefully sums up a lot of what we talked about. But um, last year we held all these town hall forums where like actually like 700 people ended up showing up to like just town halls to talk about politics. And this um, woman got up, she's like a um, cleaner who lives out at Carina Heights, like the outer suburban, most outer suburban part of Griffith. So like, mm -hmm on the eastern part and she was like look i don't like the greens um and uh i've never voted for you guys right, before. fair enough <laughs> yeah and i was and i yeah i was like yeah okay i understand and she was like but um i know like i have a kid but i know when i'm 50 i'm gonna be homeless because mm. um i don't have any assets and i'm just a renter and mm. she came and she said i've come to ask you to tell me what to do like you guys won you seem to know what's going on. I, what mm. will, what do I need to do? Do I, do I need to go to a rally? Do I need to do mm. this? Do I need to do that? And um, that was such a clarifying moment for me because if you want to give our listeners hope, there is a lot of people out there right now looking for direction, being mm. like, mm. what movement or political project should I be involved in? Yeah. And um, like my pitch to anyone listening here who isn't already involved is. Um, we, this might not be perfect, but it's the thing that's won and worked the most up until this point. And imagine if we could say to that, like, and at the time I wasn't fully sure what to say to that woman. Now mm -hmm. we can say to her, well, in this middle of this housing fight, come and help us win it. But um, imagine if we had a clear and direct response across the country in every community to that question. And I think ultimately that's what our political project is building to. Yeah. Gnarly, love that. Yeah. That's yeah, a good way to end, secret. Max. And, and thanks, and thank, and thanks, Stuart, as well for yeah for kind of probing us on all this sort of stuff. I thought that was a really drew out a lot of really interesting yeah. things and a really good structure. So I'm really interested. Next next one we're going to do, we're going to have a few of the key organisers from some of the campaigns um, on in the Brisbane sort of south side stuff where we've sort of emerged from, um, and be getting down into a bit of the nitty gritty of like you know like the specific approach we take to campaigning and how it relates to this bigger strategy so i'll be keen for that one too